I'm here to talk to you about the topic of human sin in modern science. And to introduce that, I want to go to something actually that um, Dr. Kemp shared with us about the question of when do hominids become human in the fully philosophical or theological sense. And in that regard, I want to offer um, just a little tidbit from paleoarchaeology, this discovery that occurred in 2002 in a South African cave widely regarded as one of the most important finds of all time for understanding the when and where of human beginnings, of the advent of human beings. Two pieces of engraved ochre, this is one, dating back 75 to 100,000 years ago, were discovered by archaeologist Christopher Henselwood and his team. You might notice that they bear crosshatch patterns with incised lines across the front, this ochre plaque. Um, these are the oldest known examples of human artifacts that scientists confidently interpret as symbolic. Uh, although no one can tell if they were the first ever, what seems clear is that the humans at Blombos existed on our side of the cognitive breakthrough, sometimes referred to as the human revolution, the emergence of symbolic thought the ability to organize the world around us mentally by generating a vast array of mental, verbal, and physical symbols in which one thing stands for something else. The word symbol comes from the Greek word symbolin, which means to put together. And in Blombo's cave, a design is given that seems to be put together with or to stand for some reference that remains mysterious to us. Why is this so significant? Well, even among scientists today and those of no religious commitment, symbolism and language are recognized as being at the heart of the difference between what we would call animal intelligence and human reason. In symbolic thought, we have reached the threshold of the human difference recognizably distinguishing us from the other animals, even our hominid ancestors. And it may well have been in Blombos cave, or rather someplace like Blombo's cave, that the first glimmerings of rationality can be spotted amid the sediments of prehistory. Now, for many Christians, finding the first moment or instance of the difference between humans and other animals, identifying some difference between Adam and his non-symbolic, non-linguistic parents, is the sum, or at least the peak, of what the sciences of human origins have to offer to theological reflection. But a proper approach to science by a theologian requires more, at least if you ask St. John Paul II. In June 1988, in a letter to the director of the Vatican Observatory, he expressed his vision of what he called a relational unity between religion and science, one in which theologians would need to have a leading role. Comparing the theologians of today with those of the Middle Ages, he asserted that, like the medieval masters, and I'm quoting him, theologians must understand contemporary scientific findings and test their value in bringing out from Christian belief some of the possibilities which have not yet been realized. He continued, theologians might well ask with respect to contemporary science if they have accomplished this extraordinarily difficult process as well as did those medieval masters. And he specified this with a hopeful question about theological anthropology. He asked, does an evolutionary perspective bring any light to bear upon theological anthropology 
the meaning of the human person as the Omago Dei? In my presentation, I hope to answer that question affirmatively and at least begin to develop a way in which we can think about what our faith teaches us about the human person and particularly about human sin, the tragic history of the image of God in light of modern science. So first, I want to reflect, I put from Blombos to the empty tomb there, but actually I don't think I'll get a chance to talk about the resurrection because that would just take me too long. So um, you might want to say from Blombos to Bethlehem, right, um, in talking about Christ, because I do want to talk about our Lord as part of this presentation. The first thing I want to do is reflect on human nature as understood in the light of evolutionary psychology and related sciences. From these fields, we are told that all human inclinations and tendencies are morally ambiguous, regardless of their potential for being open to what we would see as moral or recognize as moral good. They also can incline us towards things that are not. We might think about the tragic paradox of St. Paul when he laments his own life experience in his letter to the Romans, chapter 7. Well, I, what I do, I do not understand. For I do not do what I want, but I do what I hate. The will to be good is ready, but doing the good is not. For I do not do the good I want, but I do the evil I do not want. Second, I want to draw upon the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas to interpret that moral ambiguity. St. Thomas took human animality very seriously. Indeed, he stands out among his contemporaries for his insistence upon it. Thankfully, we find in him a refreshing realism regarding human nature, coupled with a deep insight into the human difference we see dimly reflected in Blombo's cave. Finally, I want to turn to scripture and tradition to consider the overarching answer of the Christian faith to the moral ambiguity of human nature as we experience it and as it manifests itself in human history, especially as this is embodied in the great liturgical feast and Catholic devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. And finally, as a postscript, I want to offer an example of a saint who embodies that theological human difference whose union with Christ compellingly reveals what is possible for human beings. So let's talk about how scientists talk about human nature today. In oftentimes, the oftentimes disconnected jumble of the media's standard popular science interpretation, and even sometimes in educational programming, human beings are oftentimes simply reduced to an evolutionary process that is posited before them. We're either castigated as the descenders of killer apes, as you could see in 2001, A Space Odyssey, those of you who actually remember that Kubrick film, or championed as the peace-loving descendants of gracile, mostly vegetarian australopiths, like on the left. So if you read through science reporting, one report will suggest that we're hopelessly violent. The next, that peaceful cooperation and altruism are the natural predispositions of humans from our beginnings. But when you look deeper into what the scientists are saying, both romantic oversimplifications miss the mark. Human life is somewhere in the complex middle. Every morally hopeful explanation of what it means to be a human also has a but. For instance, even the exhilaration of the ochre find at Blombo's cave, which reminds us of the promise of being human, of being rational, 
is troubled by the cooked remains of a cannibal feast from the same period in the same region. The Pauline paradox, I do what I hate, is present, it seems, throughout. As an example of the complex middle, consider the way we use reason, the hallmark of our species. We rightly recognize it, reason, we can talk about the capacity for objectivity, the amazing capacity we have to make judgments about our judgments as a distinctive feature of humanity. Yet it seems that the repetition of truth claims, even claims that are known to be false, have the effect of making them seem more truthful to those who receive them. The human brain favors statements that have already been processed, which can create a situation in which groups large and small become blinded by falsehoods, as can be seen in political, cultural, and religious echo chambers. Such thinking shortcuts, known by evolutionary psychology as cognitive biases, tend to limit our openness to new ways of thinking, even when our standard ways of thinking are absurd. Consider the embrace of Nazism and social Darwinism by so many in the 1930s. And yet this very tendency is one that also makes us capable of trusting all kinds of genuine sources of knowledge upon which we rely for so much of the information we have and the truths that we know and are able to reason about. What can lead in some cases to the spread of destructive ideologies like social Darwinism is also essential to knowing the truth and living in a flourishing society. In a society where no one trusts anyone, there can be no growth in knowledge and understanding. Or consider the evil of racial and ethnic discrimination. Research seems to show that we have a natural tendency to make distinctions between us and them, referring to human beings that are different than us, them. As social animals that both evolved and live in groups, we have an innate tendency to favor members of the in-group and to be less inclined toward trusting members of out-groups. Similar behaviors have been detected in other primates, which indicates that the roots of out-group bias go far back into our evolutionary history. And yet the same tendency is also at the root of our ability to bond into groups, to offer mutual support to each other within them. We are, without a doubt, one of the, if not the most highly social and cooperative species. And yet our group bonding nature also makes us cohesive in assaults upon others. Innocent blood spilt over differences of skin color, of culture, religion, runs like a river through human history. In these, in many cases, inclinations toward good and evil actions can seem to go hand in hand. How do we explain the dividing line between them that, as Solzhenitsyn incisively observed, runs through every human heart? Here, modern science can only take us so far and offers explanations that are often misleading. So I would like to rely on St. Thomas Aquinas to help guide us at how we might interpret what evolutionary science is telling us today. One of the most controversial positions of St. Thomas in his day, which can seem rather technical and insignificant to us today, is very decisive, the most decisive in this regard. This is his insistence, which was condemned by the Archbishop of Paris in 1277, on the third anniversary of Thomas's death, that was intentional, 
that in human beings there is only one substantial form, the intellectual soul. Many of his contemporaries taught that there were three different forms distinct from each other in human beings. One supplying vegetative powers, such as reproduction. One supplying sensitive powers, which we would see among the animals. And the last supplying rationality. To the contrary, Aquinas insists that, that human beings have only one soul, and that the soul is intellectual while also thoroughly and genuinely animal. As Dennis Turner puts it, for Thomas, quote, one and only one soul runs all the way down through my animal and vegetative life. Just as my vegetative and animal lives run all the way through and up into my intellectual life. While rational, we are wholly animals and not partly animals. Now, of course, the reason we can raise the question of the morality of our inclinations or where they lead us at all is because unlike non-rational animals, we do animal things for reasons and not simply because of inclinations. So we can speak of good and bad reasons and thus good and bad actions. In short, we can think of freedom. But let's not miss the point. For Aquinas, animals we are. And this means that to understand animality is to begin to understand ourselves. So to acknowledge that human animality is now much more brightly illuminated through sciences such as cognitive and evolutionary psychology and others, which have expanded the range and accuracy of our vision of our animality, our understanding of how it works, does not require substantially departing from Thomas's basic insight. Animality bears all the potential, but also the limitations of materiality. And here, St. Thomas is a diehard realist. In our bodily composition, nature, he speculated, gave the best it was capable of providing, producing a body with features that are useful for rational animals, like sense and touch. But just, he says, as a blacksmith might choose iron to make a knife for one set of reasons, Iron is hard, for example, it can be made very sharp. The blacksmith might also regret that same material for other reasons, such as the tendency of iron to rust easily. As he says, for we may note a twofold condition in any matter, one which the agent chooses and another which is not chosen by the agent and is the natural condition of matter. St. Thomas is talking about our animality here, using this analogy. We have the proper kind of biological makeup for a rational animal, but because of the very limitations of animality and materiality, that makeup cannot in itself preside, provide us with everything needed to be what God's intention is when he creates the image and, his image and likeness, the theological definition of what it means to be human. We might consider the fact that our reason and our freedom are constantly interacting with our animal instincts, like when we have to listen to a talk on a late Friday afternoon, right before dinner. Those are not easy to harmonize with knowing the truth and doing the good, which is to listen very carefully to everything I say. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> however, Thomas would reject the conclusion that our animality makes us intrinsically evil, which is how many science popularizers, and even sadly, some irresponsible scientists, will talk about what evolutionary psychology reveals about our species. It makes us only what any biological process can produce a creature that by nature pursues certain animal goods. The bad tendencies we discover in ourselves arise 
only in relation to the goods that we strive for by nature. But we are capable of knowing the difference, of being able to make judgments about our judgments. In other words, we are rational animals. Now here, and it's hard for us as believers to be surprised by this, but we should try to let ourselves hear it new. If we're thinking only like scientists or even philosophers, we would be stunned to hear St. Thomas paradoxically both affirming that this ambivalent directionality is what we should expect from being animals, while at the same time offering a theology of original sin precisely to explain why we find moral evil among human beings. If animality is the best guide to our human nature, or the only guide to our human nature, and our animality is ambiguous, we should not need such an explanation. This shows that for St. Thomas, it ought to be surprising to us that human beings sin. Being free rational animals who have limitations and imperfections in our inclinations is the beginning of the answer to the question what it is to be human. But it is by no means the complete answer. Nor would he consider it decisive that we now know that we receive those instincts and inclinations through common descent from animals. The issue of our metaphysical origin, rather than our material composition or our phylogeny, rather that we are created out of love freely by God who is love, tells us, that decis tells us decisively that moral evil is by no means natural to us in the wider sense, even if it's understandable by reference to our biological inheritance. So we have a paradox. Sin is entirely understandable by reference to our animality taken by itself. But it is a wounding of nature from the perspective of our being made in the image of God, as creatures of God. Let me clarify what it means when I say that sin is entirely understandable from one perspective, but not from another. Sin is understandable because in this material universe, we might say physical evil stalks every physical good, and our bodies and brains are no exception. At every step, we have to navigate that and discriminate between the pull of our inclinations by subjecting them to reason. Of course, sooner or later, it seems inevitable that we would stumble. From this perspective, sin is not only understandable, it can only seem inevitable. But from the theological perspective, we see that evil is not equally primal with the good. This is a quote from Pope Benedict XVI. It was an uh, Advent general audience he gave back in 2008. He was talking about Adam and Christ, the final Adam, as he was sort of going through the work of St. Paul, the theology of St. Paul. The existence of the power of evil in the human heart and in human history is an undeniable fact. Faith tells us that there are not two principles, one good and one evil, but there is only one single principle, God the creator. And this principle is good, only good, without a shadow of evil. And therefore, being too is not a mixture of good and evil. Being as such is good, and therefore it is good to be. It is good to live. This is the good news of the faith. Only one good source exists, the creator. Therefore, living is a good. It is a good thing to be a man or woman. Life is good. Then follows a mystery of darkness or night. Evil does not come from the source of being itself. It is not equally primal. 
Evil comes from a freedom created, from a freedom abused. Then the Pope asks, how was it possible? How did it happen? This remains obscure, he says. Evil is not logical. Only God and good are logical, are light. Evil remains mysterious, and not in the positive sense as, say, a theological mystery or a saving mystery would be. We might ask ourselves here about the effect of the fall of the angels on the course of life's evolution here. If the world is created ex trinitate, then everything is interconnected. If the world is created out of divine freedom, then the world has a freedom, and free choices have lasting and sometimes devastating consequences. Of course, we should be familiar with how St. Thomas answers this. In keeping with sacred tradition and the divine purpose of moral perfection and perfect happiness for which God created human beings, he teaches that God not only created us in a special dependence upon him, but that he endowed our first parents with special gifts or graces that would go beyond what they could have received from the material world and our animal nature. Through a supernatural grace given to the soul, and as long as humans did not separate themselves from God through sin, the body would have been preserved from corruption and death, bodily desires and emotions would have been wholly subject to reason, and a life lived in untainted goodness and happiness and unbroken communion with God would have been the result. These special endowments, called the preternatural gifts, or literally gifts other than the natural, were graces given to perfect our natural state, making it correspond to God's ultimate intentions for us. Reason and freedom made humans capable of communion with God, but not yet capable of living out that communion. These gifts were given so God's loving desire for our unending happiness would be realized. Now, when trying to conceive of what a preternatural existence would be like, with original integrity and freedom from suffering and death, our imaginations can tend to run away with us. Some think of the first human beings living in an earthly planet, paradise in which our planet, or at least some region of it, was radically different than it is, a place where nothing ever died and in which no physical evils were present. I think it's more helpful to think of paradise as the privileged way in which sinless humans would have existed in this world as it is. And we have a reflection of that, of course, at St. Francis of Assisi and his incredible peace with nature. Others assume that freedom from death would have meant a perpetual lifetime for humans on Earth. But many important theologians, including St. Augustine, thought that eventually our first parents and their sinless descendants would have entered into a glorified state comparable to the risen Christ, or to the Blessed Virgin Mary after she was assumed body and soul into heaven. Remember, Article 398 of the Catechism teaches that from the beginning, man was destined to be fully divinized by God in glory. Still others assume that freedom from suffering would have meant freedom from any neurological disturbance whatsoever, no pain, a situation in which humans would not need to strive or mature in wisdom and virtue, but this has also never been the teaching of the church. In fact, even our Lord grew in wisdom and knowledge and understanding and favor before God and men, as Luke tells us. We also don't know long how the first humans remained in a preternatural sinless state. St. Maximus the Confessor, the last of the great church fathers, was of the opinion that this state was lost at the very instant of the creation of the first human beings. At the instant he was created, 
Maximus wrote in his Ad Thalassium. The first man, by use of his senses, squandered this spiritual capacity, the natural desire of the mind for God on sensible things. Such a short span of time would quickly perish from human memory, especially considering that human life became inundated by sinful tendencies, separation from God, suffering, and death. At any rate, St. Thomas asserts that after the fall, and I think this resonates with what we're learning from evolutionary psychology, the first human simply reverted back to their biological heritage. When man turned his back on God, he fell under the influence of his sensual bodily impulses. After the fall, he is likened to beasts that are led by the impulse of sensuality, a deviation from the law of reason. Here, St. Thomas, who knows nothing of evolution, genetics, paleoanthropology, or evolutionary psychology, sees that what we are by nature is the rational and the irrational constantly jostling by biological nature to paraphrase the paleoanthropologist Ian Tattersall. Reflecting upon this quote from St. Thomas, the theologian Henry Rondé helps us to see how the evil tendencies we find in ourselves are both natural from a scientific perspective, but unnatural from the divine perspective. Man has been left to his biological nature, but it is precisely this that is the paradox and stumbling block. Death, suffering, ignorance, the revolt of the senses, all this is in fact natural, since man is made of flesh and spirit. But what is natural to an animal organism becomes unnatural for a soul made in the image of God. So the wound caused by original sin, our fallen state, is best understood, I think, as a spark that was snuffed by sin, a higher way of life that was lost, leaving humanity sort of actually unfinished. God had more gifts to give, but did not get to bestow them. He was stopped. We might think of the parable of the prodigal son. Like the wise and loving father in that parable, he respects the freedom of his children's bad choices. Hopefully this helps us to see whoops, sorry, why it is in the manger in Bethlehem and not in Blombo's cave, Bethlehem cave and not Blombo's, that we find out what it means to be truly human in the fullest sense, theologically. In the Constitution on the Church in the Modern World, Gaudium et Spes, the Second Vatican Council identifies Christ as the new Adam, the one who fully reveals man to himself and makes his supreme calling clear. It points to Christ as the true human being, the perfect man. He who is the image of the invisible God is himself the perfect man. To the sons of Adam, he restores the divine likeness which had been disfigured from the first sin onward. For as by his incarnation, the Son of God has united himself in some fashion with every human being. He worked with human hands, he thought with a human mind, acted by human choice, and loved with a human heart. Born of the Virgin Mary, he has truly been made one of us, like us in all things but sin. In this short summary of the mystery of the incarnation, we see the solution to the riddle, to the paradox of human nature. Christ answers our moral fragility and ambiguous inclinations with perfect love, living out an ordinary human existence in an, extraordinarily sinless, an extraordinary and sinless way. He did not take up human nature as it existed in some preternatural state. Instead, he assumed our fallen human nature in order to redeem it, purifying it through the abundance of his love and his perfect obedience to the will of the Father. 
The key phrase, I think, in this quote from Vatican II is its assertion that Jesus loved with a human heart. In biblical symbolism, the heart represents the center of thinking, willing, and acting. With this in mind, the church celebrates the feast of the sacred heart of Jesus as a reminder of the pure love with which Jesus loved all human beings and united himself to us totally. And the revelation of Christ, the word made flesh, even the holes in being created by sin and moral evil are met with mercy and with grace, with loving power that draws good out of evil. The author to the, of the letter to the Hebrews captures this beautifully. Christ, he tells us, has become our merciful and faithful high priest precisely by loving us in the midst of his own human suffering and temptations. Because he himself was tested because of what he said, through what he suffered, rather, he is able to help those who are being tested. Recognizing Jesus as fully human, he tells us that this was necessary for our sake. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has similarly been tested in every way, yet without sin. So let us confidently approach the throne of grace to receive mercy and to find grace for timely help. Jesus reversed the disobedience of sin by persevering through suffering and temptation and obedience to his Father. And it is precisely as such that he becomes the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. St. Paul expressed this mystery of our salvation in a single verse of his second letter to the Corinthians. He who was rich became poor for our sake so that we might become rich through his poverty. This marvelous exchange was celebrated by the fathers of the church, the perfect divine son grappling with and mastering our imperfect nature, making himself subject to its weakness without ever being overcome by it so that he could bring us into a new kind of life. So to become fully human in the theological sense then means finally to open ourselves to the man who was fully human, who realized our humanity in a way fully in line with God's intention. Ultimately, every human being draws near to him whenever they forget themselves in love. The church teaches us to hope that there are and have been non-Christians who have come very close to him without even knowing him explicitly, as God wills all men to be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. The Christian life is the explicit consciousness and knowledge of the real meaning of being human, like Christ to be fully and entirely with and for others. Christian formation is not simply a lifestyle choice or a mere human philosophy or a lofty idea, but from the divine perspective, it is nothing less than the completion of what hominin evolution began millions of years ago. And it's a completion that leads to a life that never ends. This love and holiness that we see in Christ and his mother is a theme that runs throughout the lives of all holy men and women, the great communion of saints whom the church holds up for us as examples and as our intercessors. We started by examining the human inclination toward outgroup bias, which, when unchecked, turns into nightmarish forms of violence against outsiders. Let's now consider a saint who is the complete antithesis of outgroup bias, who reveals how radically our animality is open to redemption and grace. One of the most horrific embodiments of violence in human history is racial slavery. The capture, bondage, and forced labor of Africans is a dark phase in the history of the colonization of the Americas. 
For two and a half centuries, the slave trade was active, and it's estimated that about 125,000 Africans entered the port city of Cartagena, Colombia, in chains between 1595 and 1640. Each ship would carry 400 to 500 slaves. It was not uncommon for a third of those to die on the two-month voyage. For the rest, the cruelty of forced labor awaited. It would have been a hopeless situation were it not for heroic Christians like St. Peter Claver. Claver was born to a wealthy family in Catalonia, Spain, the son of the mayor of his town. During his university studies, he encountered the Society of Jesus and joined them, and shortly thereafter encountered a lay brother who helped him realize a call from the Lord to go to the New World. In 1611, he arrived in Cartagena and was ordained a priest in 1616. He became an assistant to Father Alonso de Sandoval, who first began the outreach to African slaves. And then he began his own work, becoming a slave to the slaves. Over 35 years, he never missed the arrival of a ship. He would board the ships, bathe the slaves in perfumed water, and give them clean water to drink. He would carry gifts of food and would care for the sick. Over the years, he would travel widely to visit those whom he had once cared for on the ships and continue his ministry to them. In response, over 300,000 slaves would be willingly baptized by his hands. The lengths to which Claver would go to care for the slaves showed a depth of love that was truly supernatural, far surpassing any kind of natural empathy or compassion, although certainly building upon it. Claver would wipe the sweat from their faces with his own handkerchief. He would clothe the sick and diseased in his own cloak. His cloak would have to be washed up to seven times a day from the stink and filth which it would accumulate. He would uh, console them and care for them in such a way that he was even not afraid to press his lips to their wounds. He plainly saw Christ in these the least of his brethren. It may be a natural inclination for humans to fear and distrust those who are different. When hardened into evil choices and habits, whole cultures have been corrupted. But what we see in St. Peter Claver is the new natural, so to speak, made possible by grace. The recognition of all human beings as in-group, made possible by the grace of God given to us in Christ. As the words of St. Paul reveal, that new natural involves replacing bias with belonging. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, nor male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's not unique to St. Peter Claver, nor St. Paul. It's at the heart of the new reality of human life that radiates from the sacred heart of Christ. From the beginning of Christianity, we see a new standard dawning in the world, that can, the conviction that ethnicity, culture, and color do not make anyone inferior or worthy of maltreatment, slavery, or death, and that love must extend beyond the boundaries created by family and tribe. In the words of sociologist Rodney Stark in his study of the rise of Christianity from its origins, <clears throat> excuse me, as a tiny movement in Palestine to becoming the majority religion of the Roman Empire, what Christianity gave to its converts was nothing less than their humanity. In this sense, virtue was its own reward. So the work of God in fashioning his image, postponed by sin, has been definitively accomplished by Christ who invites all human beings to freely join him in this 
new, complete way of being human, the way God fully intended. The Christian claim is that the mystery of redemption has remade the universe and the human race. It has revealed where the true origin of humanity is to be discovered, not in the relics of prehistory, not in the advent of language and symbolism, but in the one who showed us what it means to be truly human, what our humanity means. Jesus, the new Adam. Thank you. Thank you.